Hello and welcome to the 80s Movie Podcast. I'm your host, Edward Havens. Thank you for listening today. On this episode, we're going to complete our miniseries on the Nightmare on Elm Street series with a discussion between myself and Jeff Townsend, the indie podfather, about these movies. I know how most people of my generation, Gen X, feel about these movies. I was there to see them firsthand, first as a filmgoer, then as a theater manager. What I wanted to get was an opinion from the generation after mine. And Jeff fits that bill. He wouldn't be born until after the third movie in the series, The Dream Warriors, was released in the theaters, placing him squarely in the millennial generation. Now, I'm never a good judge of my own material, so I will leave it up to you to decide if we had a good discussion or not. Jeff and I spoke last week via recorded Twitter space, which was open to the public to attend. A number of people did, including Dick Hollywood, my best friend, former roommate, and one-time contributor to my old website, and I do reference them in the room on occasion. So, without further ado, we hopefully proudly present a discussion about the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, as provided by a Gen X geezer and an elder millennial. I hope you enjoy it. Um, but for now, just going to be Jeff and I talking about the the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. So, uh, welcome, Jeff. Thank you, Edward. Sorry, I'm a little late. That's okay. I played uh, I played Thriller and some ACDC while we were waiting. So, uh, of course, I'll edit that out. But uh, I hope you had a safe drive home. Yeah, just a rough day, but I had a safe drive home. Oh, good. Well, um. So what I was telling everybody before you got here, um, so basically this is just kind of a free form um, question and answer, uh, two guys talking about movies. Uh, there's no real, there's no real setup. Uh, you and I really haven't discussed uh, what we're going to be talking about other than uh, the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, because uh, I think it would be interesting uh, for me as a Gen Xer, to get the perspective of someone who's from a different generation who uh, saw them in maybe a different order than I did or saw them at a different age than I did. Uh, so you are a millennial. Am I right or wrong? Completely wrong. Oh, at least at least a decade off that. I was born, really? in, the mid- I was born in the mid-80s. I think millennials are like mid-90s or something. Now millennials start in 82. I don't think so. Uh, you can look it up. Uh, in fact, um, uh, Eliza Schlesinger, the comedian, uh, has a show that's called uh, Elder Millennial, where she actually spends a good t- t- deal talking about what it's like to be an, uh, someone who is the, an early millennial. Uh, but millennials are actually early, uh, start in like 1982, 1983. First thing comes up is Wikipedia. It says ni- mid-90s. Uh, uh, Wikipedia. Mm-hmm. Uh, hold on. Well, you're definitely not a Gen Xer. I know that. I'm a Gen Z, right? No, just... uh, let's see now. Let's see. Uh, I'm on Wikipedia, and it actually says uh, researchers in popular media use the early 80s as starting birth years and the mid-90s to early 2000s as the ending birth year. So, okay. to Wikipedia. I'll, I'll proudly say I'm a millennial, as long as you don't say I'm a, what is Gen Z? Yeah, those, those people suck. Kidding. Anyway, so, um, so just to set up, 
I was born in 67. So when the first Nightmare on Elm Street movie came out, it actually came out five days before my 17th birthday. So I experienced it for the first time, 16 years old, with all my buddies at a movie theater. And, and I tell you, it was one of the, I don't like horror movies. It was one of the best horror movies for me. Uh, it was different from most of the, the trash that was coming out. And the 1980s were, are, by 1984, were already legendary for just the sheer number of bad horror movies that had come out over the years. So when did you first experience uh, Nightmare on Elm Street? That's a good question. I was born in 86, so I would say probably before I was 10 years old, because back then I feel like it was a little bit more acceptable for your kids to watch that kind of stuff. That probably sounds messed up, but uh, yeah, I'd say I was probably in the mid-90s, probably before 95. Okay. And uh, what, what did you think of it the first time you saw it? What did you think of the original Nightmare on Elm Street? I don't even remember five years ago, but I do, I do remember being, uh, definitely it was scary. Now, you know, later on, you, it's, it's a whole different take, but back then I remember it was being very creepy and it would, it would make you think when you fell asleep at night. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For, for me, it was just, uh, it was just so completely fresh and original because instead of just falling into the same slasher tropes that um that the night uh the uh, halloween movies and the friday the 13th movies and most of the horror films of the early 80s were were following on it was not gross for the sake of gross it wasn't jump scares just for the sake of jump scares there was an actual psychology behind what freddie was doing and why he was going after these specific kids and for me that made it much more interesting because it wasn't just a bunch of random kids getting off for no good reason that there was a definite connection between them and that just made it so much better for me as a as a viewer um did did you kind of make any connection like that when you were a kid or did it take a while to get there for you or did you take it as just like a the serial thing of just the blood and the gore and the and the scares. Uh, I never even introduced myself, actually. I don't know if I should do that now or not. I think we're past that. But uh, Okay, well, I can, I'm going to be editing us in and out. So um, go ahead and for those who are listening uh, either live or uh, when the eventual podcast uh, it gets edited into is released, who is Jeff Townsend? I am Jeff Townsend. I've been podcasting since 2006, and you can't teach that. Ed Havens is an 80s movie expert, and you can't teach that. Bada bing, bada boom, realest guy in the room. How you doing? I've got so many podcasts, I can't even keep track. How's that for an intro? Uh, sounds like you're Indiana's version of Matthew McConaughey. All right. All right. All right. All right. <laughs> okay, so... Um, for those of you who have never seen A Nightmare on Elm Street, which I find impossible to believe, uh, so this guy, Freddy Krueger, starts attacking uh, this young lady, Nancy, and her friends in their dreams, killing most of them in weird and gruesome, disgusting ways, 
in a fictional town in Ohio. Uh, it's revealed that uh, Freddie um, was killed by the parents of these kids because he was uh, doing some bad things uh, many years earlier, and now he's coming back for his revenge. Um, so you're the dad of three young girls. When do you think you're going to introduce them, if ever, to A Nightmare on Elm Street? Well, I already have. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I don't know. That's a great question. I, it, kids are just so different these days as far as what they're interested in. Like, I don't even know if they would want to watch it. You know, it's a different time now, but it would definitely be uh, teenage years are earliest for sure. But that's even if they would want to watch it. They're pretty hooked on the YouTube videos, man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I have a... a, a... 12-year-old nephew and a nine-year-old niece. And for from like five to ten, Alex loved to watch movies, especially the Star Wars movies. But after he turned 10, it was just like he was a completely different person. And uh, I can't get him to watch anything now with me. That's sad. Sad. Alright, so um, do you um, have you seen all of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies? Well, let me answer your previous question of like, but I put the connection together. Okay. Uh, no, but I remember the Elm Street thing because uh, two streets over from my house was Elm Street. So I thought that was pretty freaking creepy. And yeah, I've seen every single movie, even the Jason one, the crossover. Freddy versus Jason. All right. I've seen them all. Yep. Okay. Well, I've a little bit. I'll ask you about your favorites, but uh, what about uh, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, Freddy's Revenge? Remember that one at all? E- yes. I remember the, the, obviously it goes to a new family, right? Yeah. So five years after um, what happens in the original Nightmare on Elm Street, um, Freddy is back and he possesses the body of the teenage boy who now lives in Nancy's room. And and Freddy uses his body, uh, the young boy's body, in order to kill more victims. So it basically becomes a possession story instead of a ghost story of sorts. This is the movie where it's the scene in the hallway, right, where his veins are... Am I right or am I wrong here? The boy that he possessed, there's like a scene where he's being like, somebody's being tugged around by their veins or something, and they're like, out of their skin. That, that's, that's actually part three. Uh, oh. Warriors. Um, now this one, this one, they actually rushed it into production uh, because it was the next year. It was less than a year. Part, yeah, it was actually less than a year. It was uh, it, the, the second movie premiered on November 1st, 1985, which is, you know, 51 weeks after the release of, of Wes Craven's movie. So that means they have, you know, they had a surprise success. So they had to negotiate with Wes Craven, who didn't want anything to do with it. And then they had to write a script, hire actors, hire a director, make a movie, cut it, score it, and get it into theaters in less than a year. And for me, that kind of, it's not as good as the original, obviously, very few sequels are. But for this one, it just feels like a rush job. What can we do? that to get Freddy back as quickly as possible. 
Yeah, you know what I thought was crazy? Okay, so I'm starting to remember this now. It's where the girlfriend has to save him. Uh, I think what's crazy about this when I think about it is a lot of times when you have a, a big hit like that, obviously it's another low-budget film. I mean, not quite as low as Halloween or something, but usually when that second one comes out, it has a lot of hype. And a lot of times, just based off that hype, it will outperform the first as far as the box office. But if I'm remembering correctly, like it wasn't even like half the box office, was it? Which I think is kind of rare. No, the uh, third one, yeah, usually a drop off. But no, after the first, no, actually the second one did. Um, I'll have to look at the exact numbers real quick. But the second one did uh, much better than the original in terms of like opening, simply because the original Nightmare on Elm Street didn't open as wide as the second movie did because. New Line was a small independent distributor in, in 1984. And this was literally Freddy Krueger was their first big hit. They'd been releasing movies for a decade. They'd done movies with um, John Waters and a bunch of other um, people. But yeah, it only opened, the original only opened in 165 theater and eventually grossed $25 million after like five months. But the second one, um, Oh, we get, let me find the exact number. It opened in 522 screens and ended up grossing $30 million. So it actually outgrossed. I thought the first one was like over 50. No, it was only uh, 25 million originally. And then with maybe with extra re-releases over the years, um, it might have gotten a little higher. But in 1984, 1985, it only made 25 million. And then 1985, 1986, uh, the sequel made over 30 million. Still not that much more, and it was yeah. not near as it was not near as good. I'll tell you that not not near as good. Uh, and that the third one we had was Nightmare on Elm Street: Dream Warriors, uh, where Wes Craven actually came back to help write the storyline. And for me, it's one of the reasons why I think it's one of the better sequels is because you actually had some involvement with Wes Craven, who, if you may or may not know, was actually a philosophy student in college before he became a filmmaker. And that's one of the reasons I, I like the movies that Wes Craven's involved in, because it isn't just cookie cutter, let's kill a bunch of teenagers. It's actually got reasoning and thought behind it. So the third one is actually the one with uh, Patricia Arquette. It's one of her first movies, um, Academy Award winner for Boyhood, uh, part of that whole Arquette clan. Um, but she's a, uh, in a mental institution with several other teenagers uh, from the same city. Uh, Nancy from the first movie comes to work as an intern and Freddie uh, starts trying to kill off all of the remaining kids from the small town. And you discover uh, in the movie how Freddie came to be. Um, and so for me, Dream Warriors of the five movies that were made in the 80s, that one's after the original, the best one for me, just because it tried to be better than just a cookie cutter slash or something. In my opinion, I'm still calling you out on the box office uh, fact check. I want that done. But no, I, I think this one was, you could tell that Wes Craven, I mean, he returned his hands down better. He reintroducing the original characters to me was significant. Uh, I like the whole aspect of the 
what was it? The dream powers or the, I'm trying to think of how it was worded in the movie. They had, uh, they kind of had like psychic powers that mm -hmm. they combined together in order to defeat Freddy quote once and for all, which of course never happened. But in, in the movie, you know, they, they teamed together, um, just to make sure that, you know, these five kids together with their power as a team, kind of like in Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, but psychically instead of physically. I think, okay, so I like this one. I really did. And to me, it would, would have been a great final one. You got the story explained, which was interesting because you didn't know that level of detail. Uh, you brought the original characters back. It would have been a cool place to stop, probably. But obviously, I think this is where he kills uh, Nancy at the end. Uh, I liked this one. It's my second favorite, too. Yeah. I, I, just think about it. If that would have been the end. Yeah, it would have, it would have been a good ending point. And uh, another thing I love about Dream Warriors is it's got Larry Fishburne in it as uh, one of the interns at the mental institution. And, uh, and uh, if I remember right, uh, you know, he didn't have much interaction in the movie itself, but by that time he had already been a star of sorts for like 10 years. So it was really cool to see Lawrence Fishburne up on the screen with the, in this horror movie, because he doesn't do a whole lot of horror movies. Yeah. I mean, I can't really speak to him a whole lot, but I'm going to take your word for it. If he contributed to this movie in any way, shape, or form, he did a good job. Because yeah. This is the second favorite one of mine. Yeah. And then the third one, the one we're talking about now, actually did better than the first or the second one. For uh, it, for original releases, it actually was the highest grossing movie of the series. I wonder why. Because there wasn't like the second one was so much better than the first that wanted to make you watch the third. I, I think it was that it had a, a really good cast. And that unlike the second one, it actually had some really good reviews. And usually as, as, as someone who actually was reading reviews back then, I, my friend Dick Hollywood, who uh, I grew up with and attended many, many uh, horror movies with in the uh, 80s and 90s, um, would attest. Um, I think it's just a matter of, of when a horror movie gets more critical praise that will drive people who are on the fence about horror movies to check it out. The, the first one got some great reviews. The second one, the buzz was not so great, but people were hyped up for it because it was a sequel to, you know, this movie that they loved. It was already out like a year later. The third one came out like 15 months later. But didn't didn't they spend a lot more money on it too? I mean, it seems like watching it, you can tell that they had spent more money on it. In my opinion, yeah. So the first one cost a million to make. The second one cost three million, and this one, the third one, cost four and a half million. Mm. So, it was, so the budgets kept going up, but there were some great sequences, uh, like the one that I still remember, even though I haven't seen this movie in many years, is. Um, one of the characters, when they're fighting Freddy, all of a sudden she's got all of these syringes filled with drugs because she's a she's in there because she has a drug problem, 
And she's got all these syringes sticking out of her arms all of a sudden with this glowing orange ooze inside that Freddy's trying to use to kill her. And just these were effects that they they couldn't pull off in the first one simply because they didn't have the budget. That they really did a good job with not just spending more money, but spending it wisely so that the effects were more intricate and more interesting than than the the movies that have lower budgets that they couldn't do as much with. Yeah, and I, I don't know if this is around the time period where you could see advances in, in film and all that, but it definitely seemed to be different. Unfortunately, it just goes downhill after this. Yeah, unfortunately it does. Uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 4, The Dream Master, uh, was directed by Rennie Harlan, would go on to direct uh, Die Hard 2 and Cutthroat Island, and uh, he became a pretty big action director there for a while. But this was his second movie after... Um, a movie he was supposed to make with Chuck Norris that ended up starring Chuck Norris's son instead because they couldn't afford Chuck Norris. <laughs> uh, but the Dream Master, um, we again see the ghost of Freddy Krueger's mom, who lets us know um, even more of how Freddy came to be. And this one had a six and a half million dollar budget, and they brought a whole bunch of characters back from the third movie, and then killed him off right away. Yep. <laughs> Which always pisses me off when you know, the uh, Alien 3, I love Alien 3, but it pissed me off that the first thing that happens is they kill off three of the better characters from the second movie. Just- yeah, and to my point earlier, it kind of feels like, like I said, the third one would have been a really good point to end it, but it kind of feels like this was a revamp to keep right. it going. Yeah. And then, and then one of the things that apparently this re- the, one of the reasons that this movie suffered was because there was an actual writer's strike in Hollywood while the film was in production. Because usually when films are being made, you know, they can call up, a, if something's not working, they call up a writer and they say, hey, can you come up with something real quick? And uh, they couldn't actually do that because from the time the movie was being shot till a week before it was getting released, uh, they couldn't do any rewriting. So there was a lot of improvising on the set when things weren't working. And I think that's one of the reasons why the movie just fell yeah. apart at the wheels is because they didn't really have a, a strong script. They were rushing to get it out again. But still though, wasn't this like an 18 month turnaround? It yeah. was, it was about six, yeah, about 16, 17 months. Mm. Um, but it was, uh, um, Oh, Sorry. Uh, this one actually did even more than one, two, or three. It uh, grossed almost $50 million and was the highest grossing nightmare film until Freddy and Jason was released in 2003. Yeah. Economics, had, economy had changed too here. So, yeah. I'm, I'm just shooting down some things. Can I tell you about uh, my, the thing I hate about this movie? Sure. That's why you're here. So, they did a good job. I feel like the power thing, I was like, eh, okay, that's pretty cool. Then they just took that and they just defecated all over it in this movie and ruined that certain, that, that plot, I guess you could say. Because didn't she start getting like all these powers of everybody? And it just kind of ruined that for me. Yeah. Well, it, it, it kind of spills into the fifth movie, which we'll get into in a second because I don't want to jump ahead. But yeah, there's, um, there's the power of the Dream Master. Uh, at the end that she uses to release all of the souls that Freddy 
had taken over the years and they literally ripped him to shreds at the end. And he's supposed to be dead, like he's supposed to be dead in the first one and the second one and the third one. But guess what? They come out with another one less than a year later. Another one exactly a year later. Nightmare on Elm Street 5, The Dream Child, which was directed by a guy named uh, Stephen Hopkins, who, while this film didn't do so good, he actually went on to uh, direct Predator 2 and uh, uh, Blown Away. I don't know if you remember that one with uh, Jeff Bridges and Tommy Lee Jones, the firefighter who had to stop the bomber in Boston. Yes, yes. And then... And then uh, the big, big, big budget Lost in Space that came out 20 years ago or 25 years ago with the Matt LeBanc while he was still on Friends. But yeah, he went on to have a good career, but this was like his second movie as a director. And you can kind of tell that, you know, it's starting to lose some steam. The storyline uh, sucks. Huh? And the storyline and plot sucks. Yeah, I've never been a big fan of, of outside of one and three, and then one of the other ones we'll talk about in a minute. Uh, yeah, it just feels like the ones that don't have any involvement from Wes Craven just kind of fall apart because now it's like, again, oh, look, it's Freddy's mom again to give us more exposition of how we can kill Freddy again, except he never actually died. And they had to bring it. They had to bring a baby in the womb in them, too. Yeah. It was like, uh, it's alive, the uh, the demonic baby movies from the 70s, but now with Freddy Krueger in it as the demonic baby of sorts. Yeah, uh, it just, and for, after four movies of doing better box office each time, this one actually did not do very well. Um, it, uh, only grossed $22 million compared to almost $50 million for just the previous one. So it fell pretty darn quick. And they spent the same amount of money. Huh? They spent the same amount of money to make it, didn't they? Uh, they spent $8 million making it. So yeah. uh, the budget kept going up. But after the, at this point, the, the ticket sales started going down. Uh, and a lot of it just has to do because, you know, I think some horror fans by this kind realized that the movies without Wes Craven weren't very good. And you can also see that when we get to Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare, which came out in 1991, you know, we're now not rushing them out anymore. You know, it actually took two and a, uh, almost Oh, a little over two years to make the next Freddy Krueger movie when they were being pumped out, you know, every 12 to 18 months. So taking a little more time. Uh, but, you know, and you've got a good cast. You've got Johnny Depp's back. You've got Roseanne Barr, Alice Cooper, uh, Yafet Kodo from Alien, and uh, Homicide Life on the Streets, my favorite television show of all time. But you can see her. You know, they're taking more and more time because they're hoping that maybe people will forget the previous movie and remember how much they liked 
the ones that came before. Yes. Go ahead. No. Uh, I don't know how you feel, but I, I, I liked it more than the one before. It wasn't my favorite. Which one? Great job. The, the, Freddy's Dead? Uh, no, I'm talking now. The, we're on to the final nightmare. Yeah. You know, it wasn't just like a 3D movie, too. Uh, I never hear that. You know what? I honestly don't remember. Uh, the, yeah. The, it I, was. It was significant. It was like that studio's uh, big 3D movie, maybe their first one or something. Um, yeah, um, yeah, this was New Line's first 3D film release. You are correct. See, I learned things from you. I, I don't remember ever even seeing this. Um, how common was 3D then? It, it hadn't been, it hadn't been used in years. Um, so, you know, just from what I remember of my research from the 3D episode I did earlier in the year, uh, 3D came back in 81 and kind of disappeared after 84. So this would have been the first 3D movie probably in seven or eight years and would be the last 3D movie for at least 10 years. <laughs> and I think it only a portion of the movie. If I remember right, only like the last few minutes were in 3D. Wow. What, is, but, is this the one with the little demon floating around? Uh, that's a good question. I, like I said, I, I don't actually remember ever seeing this one. Um, just that, uh, you know, by this time, all the kids in Springwood were dead. Um, and then guys, yeah. See, I, yeah, this is the dream demons one. Okay. Looking it up now. So they continue, they continue to revive him. They discovered these demons are the reason he continues to be revived. So, and, and again, the concept of he can be killed, he's pulled into the real world. Right. And then they rip him again. Yeah. Or oh yeah, this was the one where they bought, they blow him up. If I remember right. I'm trying yeah. to take. Yeah, yeah. That's the pipe bomb. They, they they literally throw a pipe bomb into his chest and blow him up from the inside because the dream demons can't revive him in the real world. Yep, exactly. Um, so yeah, the, that one, I vaguely, I vaguely remember now that I'm talking to you, I, I remember a little more about it. Um, I was thankfully the theater that I was working at at the time, uh, we didn't play it. It played really? it. Yeah. I played it because the theater that I was working at at the time, uh, the Beverly center had, um, a, co a competitor across the street. We were in the Beverly Center, and then there was a shopping center across the street called the Beverly Connection that had a six-screen theater, and they played Freddy's Dead. And uh, and so I, I, part of me is like grateful that I didn't have to clean up all the tossed-out 3D glasses, because back then they didn't really recycle them, because they were just the cheap red and blue lenses. Uh, they hadn't even gone to, they hadn't gone to the polar the proper polarized glasses yet that can be recycled. So um, I'm just kind of thankful that it was, you know, my team didn't have to clean up even more trash than they already had to clean up. I think they were plugging the 3D uh, glasses in the movie too, if I remember. They were really trying to push it. I think that's how part. I think that's how she uh, was able to kill him. I think that was like a crucial step of it. Possibly, <laughs> uh, like I said, I don't. I certainly, you know. Uh, be also being as an 80s movie expert, this movie's from the 90s, so I can 
I can feign ignorance. But the next one, uh, the one that came out in 1994, Wes Craven's New Nightmare, is actually the best movie in the series. I agree. Um, I'm not sure how my friend Dick would feel. Uh, maybe we'll bring him up in a minute uh, if he wants to join us. But uh, for me, this one was amazing because it wasn't trying to just be a copycat. It was trying to really mess with an audience's idea of what horror should be. And one of my favorite anecdotes about the movie came out in 1994. Um, I was working for Landmark Theaters at the time. And uh, I actually got to go to a trade screening of the movie about two months before the movie came out. And I was watching it at a theater in Los Angeles. And you remember there's a scene in the movie that takes place during the 1994 Los Angeles earthquake. Yes. And we actually had a minor earthquake in Los Angeles. Now this is like six, seven months after the, the Northridge earthquake. But we had an, a, 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 like a four-point-something earthquake, not a small one, but not a huge one, that actually hit the theater. Because the theater was like three miles from the epicenter of the of the Northridge earthquake, but there was a, what was considered a, a a late aftershock to the original January earthquake hit the theater area as the earthquake was happening in the movie. It was one of the most, most surreal moments. They actually had to stop the projector and and evacuate the theater. And there was only like 15 of us in the, in the, in the theater at the time, because it was 10 in the morning on like a Tuesday, but we had to evacuate into the parking lot and then they checked the theater building before we can go back in. So, you know, after all of this is happening, there's a earthquake happens. Then we have to wait half an hour to see what happens for the rest of the movie. But that was just like a bonus because the way that he just weaved in Heather Langenkamp, and Nancy, how he weaved in Robert Englund and Freddie, all the real people and all the characters that they played coming in and, and how they come in and out of the storyline throughout the entire movie. I thought it was fantastic. And, and a lot of the themes he kind of carried into Scream two years later. Uh, so it was for me, it was rather disappointing that the movie actually did even worse than all the previous um, yeah yeah it had ran its course by then but here's the thing I think and you can correct me if I'm wrong okay. isn't this the vision that he originally had for Freddy this, I mean this Freddy that appears in this movie is much darker uh, isn't that like the vision that was a, like originally proposed by Wes Craven for Freddy um, I, I don't think so. Um, for me, what I remember was that he wanted to bring the series back to where he originally started with it. And, uh, he wanted it to be, because by, by the time Freddy gets to four and five and new nightmare, it's kind of like a, a up comic almost. 
where he's winging a lot of one-liners and making the death that kills funny. While, you know, he wanted something, you know, his original storylines were, you know, much darker and less comical and, and more cerebral. It wasn't just about the killing. It was about, you know, the evil that men can do. So he was trying to bring it back into what he had originally wanted instead of, you know, seeing where the character was being bastardized yeah. in, his, in his mind. I think that I loved how they incorporated, like, the making of the films also in this. Uh, like you said, they brought back the cast. Right. And, like, they're shooting. Yeah, I mean, the whole theme of this, they have to talk her, the storyline is they have to talk um, Nancy back into, I guess it's Heather in real life, but back into doing another movie, right? Right. Um, well, she was actually shooting uh, a TV show at the time. Yeah. And she went, and so in the storyline, they actually take that. She was working on a sitcom, but she was being stalked by an obsessed fan. Um, and so she's dealing with the stalker who's harassing her through the phone calls, you know, through phone calls. So, yeah, it was just that it was a mix of her part of her real life as as Heather, the actress, and then a fantasy life where she's got a child. You know, with an with an character who's not actually her husband in real life, and you know, a kid who's not really her kid in real life because she doesn't have. So it's just the way that it just kind of folded itself into itself, and then you actually have Wes Craven showing up in a Wes Craven movie playing Wes Craven, and you have. The, the the guy who started New Line Pictures, Robert Shea, who produced all of those movies, playing himself, trying to get the audience. It's just like, it just, there is no horror movie. In fact, there's very few real movies of any kind. Um, sorry, horror are real movies. Just my brain was getting ahead of itself. But there are very few movies that basically take a, a Fellini-esque approach to a movie about a movie by bringing in the characters and the people playing the character. It's just, I, it's hard for me to verbalize on the spur of the moment. I'll do a better job when I'm actually recording the episode because I've written it all down. But just the way that he just takes all of this stuff and the mythology that he helped create and the actor's are game enough to play themselves and their characters and just how it all bounce around in time and, and space. It just, it just, it was just exciting because it was something that was so different than anything we had seen in the series. And that's what made it so good is that it was a filmmaker who was trying to do something much different than even he had done with this series. And that's why it worked so well for me because he was pushing the boundaries and trying to make it into something more than just a, a, a gruesome stand-up comic who kills. Yeah. It wasn't as cheesy and the acting was better because, well, it was relatively simple in my opinion. Yeah. And it's the outside of, Outside of the original, it's actually the best reviewed 
of the nightmare movies, but it's also the lowest performing. Uh, then you have Freddy versus Jason, uh, in from 2003, which, uh, just, just got awful. Some good nudity in that one though. Huh? Some good nudity in that one though. That's the only part of the movie that was good. <laughs> okay. Positive. I've, I, I know I've seen it. I don't remember anything about it. Uh, other than the lengths that new line went through to buy the rights to Jason Voorhees from Paramount Pictures so they could make this movie. The fans absolutely wanted it. The, move, the, the Freddy vs. Jason movie actually cost more to make than all of the other Nightmare movies combined. $30 million budget to put these two horror characters together to fight out the end. And to be completely honest, I don't even remember if there was a winner or if they played around to make them both winners or no, you yeah. like, I just, for me, it was just like, I know <laughs> that's the best I can put. It. Uh, I, I just they, grumbled the entire time I watched it. They tried to do this thing where, uh, they both were kind of went into the water, but the next day Jason comes out and he's actually holding, I think he's holding Freddy's head, but then he winks. Freddy's Freddy's head winks, so it's like, oh well, there's no winner. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then and then they tried to reboot it in 2010 with uh, uh, Jackie Earl Haley from the original Bad News Bears uh, playing Freddy, and even though it was quite a big hit, uh, they never made another one. Uh, which is kind of like the opposite of what usually happens in, in movies. Or if a movie's a hit, you rush out and make another one. I I don't know. I, I, yeah. I know that Wes Craven didn't like it. I know that Fred, uh, the Freddy Krueger original actor Robert Englund didn't like it. Uh, it seems nobody involved in the original movie liked it. And uh, even Robert Shea, the original producer of the first one who knew like pictures basically was the house that Freddie built had nothing to do with it. So it's just like, if nobody's involved in the original and, and they didn't like it, it's probably a good chance. It's not a good movie. Yeah. Interesting fact about Freddie versus Jason though. Okay. The director was a, a Chinese fella and I don't want to, Ronnie, you, I thought I'm going to want to pronounce it. Yeah, he actually worked on the movie Hong Kong and uh, Bride of Chucky. Yeah. Oh, Ronnie Yu is actually a pretty well-known uh, director in in Hong Kong. Uh, he made a movie back in the uh, in the eighties uh, called Legacy of Rage, which was the first movie with Brandon Lee, uh, Bruce Lee's son, who mm-hmm. of course tragically died during the filming of The Crow. But he was actually, um, he actually was very well-known filmmaker in, in Hong Kong. Uh, he did uh, The Bride with White Hair uh, in the mid-90s, which was a, is a fantastic um, Wuxia movie with uh, Leslie Chung, uh, who's a great actor, a great uh, Hong Kong actor. He, and this was, I think, uh, was like his third movie in America. Um, 
and then he kind of left after it. He was going to make snakes on a plane. I do remember that much, and that would have been interesting. Ronnie, you... Yeah, he, he actually appears in the A Nightmare on Elm Street reboot, the 2010 one. Okay. Oh. So kudos to that. But I will say this about that. That movie. I think that the last one there, that the reboot, was just like a worse version of the uh, new Nightmare. Like, it right. just... I understand where they're trying to go with it, but it was like, it went from like odd, creepy um, perversion to just downright dirty and creepy vermilion in it. Yeah, it was disturbing. Yeah, that's that's one of the things I've, I've, I've reasons I'm not a fan of horror movies that have been made in the last 10 or 15 years, and they're just me. And that's why I like like the Michael Myers right like like halloween it's not he there's like that's not in the plot of him personally his character at all i mean the, in the first in the first halloween movie you don't know who he is you don't know why he's killing anybody uh the movie ends the first movie ends he's you know he there he has no relation to Lori yet you know he's he's just a, a, a disturbed guy who's killing all of these people and you have no idea why. And yeah, kind of not the point. And, but in the, but in the, the Rob Zombie movies, uh, it's just, it's, it's brutal for all the wrong reasons. I'm not against brutality in a movie as long as it serves a certain purpose, but Rob Zombie's movies seem to be just mean and brutal for no good reason other than to be mean and brutal and and push boundaries you know how far can you take an r rating is yeah is like and and rob zombie was never a very good filmmaker to begin with to segue this i know you want me to talk about how i feel watching it today i'll have a segue to that whenever you're all right i'm ready so, obviously, when you're when I was younger, I thought it was just scary, creepy. Now you look back at it and you watch it and you think, how like we were just talking about perverted it is, how awkward it is, and it almost, to me, takes away any sort of creepiness. Like when I'm watching it now, it's just like, oh my gosh, you know, it's not even. I can't even watch it the same way because I understand the things that are being said. And it, I no longer look at it as like a scary thing. Yeah, there, there's creepy parts. There's things that'll make you jump. But to me, it was like, uh, this is just more of like a, a half comedy, half horror movie almost. Maybe not half, but quite a bit of comedy you start to realize is in it when you're older. Right. And, and that's not, I mean, that's not what a horror movie should be. Comedy should be used in a horror movie as a temporary, um, like, like a sigh, like, oh, you know, just to give you a moment of reprieve before you go back in. And my favorite horror movies, you know, they, they, they understand that the audience needs time to reflect on what they've just watched. They need time to process. They need time to prepare 
for whatever you're going to give them next. And I think that's something that a lot of modern horror filmmakers have, have either forgotten or never learned, is that you need to give people time to, to get over what they just saw and get ready for what you want to present next. You know, they, they, in, in, in Hollywood parlance, they call them beats. You know, you have certain beats that once you hit something, you give it time before you hit the next beat. Give it time before you hit the next beat. That way, people don't feel like they're being punished, like um, hostile. Just the hostile movies, they're just brutal. The uh, human centipede movies, they're just brutal. For, and it's like, what they just seem to be like, how far can we take it? How horrible can we make things for the characters? just continually before audiences just throw up their hands or throw up other things. Um, and that's why I, I, I almost, I think the last, the last horror movie I saw last weekend was barbarian. Have you seen barbarian yet? No, I haven't. So it's a horror movie. It's, it's absolutely a horror movie, but there's very little gore. And ironically, it's, it's written and directed by one of the guys from The Whitest Kids You Know, that sketch comedy troupe yeah, from years ago. And there's a lot of long takes, and there's a lot of, of setup. And like the first half hour, you're just kind of getting to know these characters, and nothing really bad happens. You're kind of wondering what's going on. And... I've never seen the one movie the whitest kids you know made years ago called Miss Marge. I never saw it. I, I'm not very familiar with them. But what I liked about Barbarian was that he gave you time to get to know the characters. Because if you just should throw a bunch of teenagers at the wall and then you start, you know, stabbing them and shooting them with with spears and other things. And you don't get to know the characters, you have no investment in their deaths. And and Barbarian was interesting that the whole first part of the movie is nothing but setup. And so, in a sense, he's creating tension because you're expect you're going into a horror movie. So you're expecting something to happen. And then it doesn't happen. When is it gonna happen? When is it gonna happen? Oh my god. You know what I mean? And it's it's actually a really good film. Uh my wife found it much more disturbing than I did because of certain things that happen in the movie that I think women will respond to differently than men. Um but in a sense it was just like it was a very effective modern horror film because it gave you the time to process what's going on. It gave you the time to get to know the characters so you could care about. That's one of the things I like about some of the night the, the Nightmare on Elm Street movies and even the Scream movies that Craven would make years later is that he gives you time to breathe. He gives you time to get to know Nancy, to get to know the kids in the uh, asylum, to get to know the actors who are playing characters of themselves within a movie of in the movie of the movie things like that. And then when you get to screen that you get time to get to know Sidney Barrow and, and the other Gale and the other characters. And that's why I think that he's one of the best, he was one of the best 
horror filmmakers is because he actually gave you time to get to get you ready for what's going on and to get to know the characters. You actually give a damn about what happens to them if and when something finally happens to them. Well, I agree with you 100% there. And I think that's the big difference in, uh, like, I keep saying Halloween, but you have reoccurring characters of significant form, whereas in Nightmare on Elm Street, yeah, they kind of pop in later. You know, some of them get killed off. It's just not the emotional attachment like you're saying. Yeah, because if you look at Scream, the first movie introduces a character, several characters, that then are used in the second movie, and the third movie, and the fourth movie, and even the fifth movie um, that came out, what, last year or this year? I don't remember. But, but you know, they, him and the writers, Craven and the writers, at least on the first three, they spent the time to build a world and give you these characters who you form an attachment to. So, you know, by the time you get to Scream 2 and Scream 3, you've now spent technically years with these characters, granted, because, you know, the movies come out every couple of years. But you spent all this time with these characters, getting to know them and getting to see how they interact with each other and have how they process the loss of their friends that got murdered in the previous movies and their friends who did the murdering in the previous movies and how they know these things that are going to happen because it's a very self-conscious horror film. So I love how these movies... Yep, hold on. Um, kind of just give you that space to breathe, to, to, to enjoy. So, um, that's, that's my thoughts. Uh, do you have any final thoughts before we go? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think, uh, this franchise definitely has its spot in history. I'm just not sure where it is on my opinion, but the killer perversion, creepy thing was the first time I had experienced anything like it. So, uh, other killers, Jason, Michael Myers, even some of the other stuff they did in the seventies that were good. It, it it feels like it was a new kind of character as far as a main villain killer in a horror movie. Right. Yeah. There was nobody like Freddy before. Exactly. Right. Well, uh, I want to thank Jess for, uh, Hopping in and uh, spending some time talking about uh, the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. Thank you very much, Jeff. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, hopefully, my lack of knowledge was not too bad, but nevertheless, I I do like talking horror movies, so I appreciate having the opportunity to hang out with you. All right, well then, you've got a year to prepare for the next year's uh, recording of a brief history of the Friday the Thirteenth movies. Ooh, I, I know I know those well. Okay, well then, we'll talk more next year about those. Can't wait. All right. Thanks for coming aboard, Jeff. We'll talk to you later. Yep. See ya. Have a good night. And with that, we complete our short visit to Springwood, Ohio, and the dastardly deeds of one Freddy Krueger. Thank you for joining us. We'll talk again tomorrow 
when episode 92 on the little-remembered 1987 drama Positive ID is released. The 80s Movie Podcast has been researched, written, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens for idiosyncratic entertainment. Thank you again. Good night. (laughs) 